We're going to be heading to Luke chapter 5. But I want to mention just one thing about this key verse, John 12, 26. John 12, 26 should be uh, in your handout. And there Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I remember reading this verse and being struck by several things. The first and most glaring to me is the promise at the end of the verse. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And if you know your Bible and you know theology, the the foundation for good biblical theology is the reality that God does all things for his glory. In fact, there are places in the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 48, where God says that he will not share his glory with another. And yet here, for those who serve Christ and follow Christ, it says that one of the benefits of heaven is that we will be honored by the Father. To me, that is just absolutely staggering. There's a pulse in the human heart to to be praised. And I know for me, when I was saved and converted, that was one of the first things that God convicted me of was that almost everything I did was motivated by the desire to be praised. It was wrong. We live in God's world, not mine, and I don't get to be the center of everything. But here, this promise redeems that desire. It's like the desire of a child who longs for the love and approval and affirmation of their parent. Right? Almost every child has that innately. This promise is the, re- the redemption of that part of our hearts that longs for that kind of significance and affirmation from our Heavenly Father. And it comes when we follow and serve Christ. This is the wonderful promise of this verse. And also there's promise here Christ's presence in the middle. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. I think it's interesting that it's not flip-flopped, that where you go, I'll be with you. Oh, that's a biblical truth. Here it is. If you follow me, then where I am, my servant will be also. We'll, We'll come to a place similar to where Christ is and we'll be with him and associated with him, identified with him. The other thing this verse does is it, establishes a clear pattern for future disciples. This phrase, follow me, is prominent in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew 4, when he calls his first disciples, he simply says, follow me. It says immediately they left their nets and followed him. Later on, in Matthew 8, a would-be disciple says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And uh, and. And there are obstacles to them following Christ. In Matthew chapter 9, he calls Matthew Levi at the tax booth. Follow me. He gets up and follows him. In Matthew 19, he says to the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and follow me. And he doesn't follow him. So this is a very prominent theme, obviously, in the ministry of Christ, calling disciples. And it had a very literal uh, initial sort of uh, response, right? You literally leave what you have, follow Jesus in his ministry. But this this verse tells me that this is a universal principle for those who would come after Christ, even those who initially followed him, but then had to live after his 
ascension back to heaven, but then also for everybody who reads John's gospel, right? This is universal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Which means that those calls to those disciples are the same call today for any potential follower of Christ and disciple. And that's really the premise for this study, is that there is always this abiding call of Christ to follow him, and then once we have begun to follow him, to follow him more closely. And I think that in the Gospels, there is this thread and trail that we can follow of Jesus's very unique and precise uh, discipling of the Apostle Peter. And so as present-day disciples of Christ, we can follow that process and I think learn a lot about what is essential for being a close follower of Christ. We learn from Peter's example. Now really I think the, the, the best way to do this is to look at the whole of Peter's life, right? So we learn about Peter in John chapter 1. That's the earliest sort of chronological marker of Peter's life. Peter shows up throughout the Gospels, obviously, then on into the book of Acts is very prominent. And then Paul takes center stage in Acts. And then later on we have two letters by Peter, 1 Peter, and then just before his death, 2 Peter. And if we read those epistles, thinking about how does the writing here reflect the author and his character and his thinking, there is a different Peter in 2 Peter than there was in the early chapters of the Gospels. It is a different Peter. You can hear it in his voice. You can hear it in his wisdom. You know, in the Gospel, he's kind of known for speaking out and saying some things that get him in trouble. Not so in those later epistles. And it it, it becomes clear that Jesus has been working to disciple Peter for the entirety of his life. In fact, in John 21, Jesus makes reference to Peter's early life and says, when you were young, you used to gird yourself and go about wherever you wanted, but not so when you become old, right? This tells me Jesus knows Peter's life from the beginning and he knows the end and he knows what he's going to accomplish in Peter's life in that duration of time. So we get this wonderful picture of what happens with Peter in that process. This is one of my favorite themes in all the Bible. And it's really not so much because of Peter, but because of how Jesus, as his good shepherd, shepherds and disciples Peter. You get to see Jesus' wisdom on display, his discipline on display. You get to see how Jesus unveils Peter's heart, and then also how Jesus comes with an overwhelming degree of grace to restore Peter after he totally failed, right? That's why this is such a wonderful theme to me. I hope is encouraging to you and challenging to you as we go through this. Let me just pray and we'll start in John chapter 1. Father, thank you for this time together and for this wonderful theme. Lord, this is your word and this is what you have done in Peter's life and laid down here in your word to instruct us and to edify us and to teach us to challenge us, to correct us, to rebuke us, all of those things that your word does. Lord, I do pray that you would work through your word in these several sessions in the next couple of days uh, to speak to us 
I pray that you would speak to us individually and that you would continue to do this very specific, sanctifying work in our hearts as we look to you. Lord, I I pray for each one here. You know their hearts down to the depths and desires. Lord, you know them better than themselves. Lord, be our good shepherd during this time. Speak to us in a powerful way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we find Peter first in John chapter 1. And we see this theme come out in Jesus' very first interactions with him. John's gospel opens with that unforgettable prologue in verses 1 through 18. And chronologically, this now is when Jesus comes back to the area where John is baptizing. And it's after his own baptism by John and then his 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. He returns now, and that's where John picks up, and he focuses on John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus. He says he is not the Christ himself, in verse 20. And then down in verse 29, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And so John points out very clearly that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the Son of God, verse 34. The next day is Jesus' first interaction and encounter with his disciples, some early disciples. Look at verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said, Come and see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Now, just as an aside, I feel like this is probably necessary culturally. How many people are fans of the Chosen series? Okay, me too, me too, me too. Uh, Some of the backstories about Peter are very creative. Um, They're not necessarily biblical, but they're very creative. I think one of the things here to consider is that Peter, Peter's brother Andrew, was a disciple of John the Baptist. But I think it's very likely that Simon Peter was familiar with John the Baptist's ministry as well. Um, Beyond that, we don't have a whole lot about Peter's background, right? Whether he was in debt and all that stuff that they add into the show. Certainly we know he was a fisherman. Um, But I think he was familiar with John the Baptist's ministry and was a sound Jew uh, accordingly. Look what it says in verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. First interaction. 
Now, if, if you've read your New Testament, you know that that is loaded with significance and meaning, right? This shows up later in Matthew 16, uh, on uh, Peter's great confession of faith. Jesus affirms this name that he's given him. But at this point, I would bet you that Peter has no idea what Jesus is talking about, right? In fact, I wonder if he thought it was a cool nickname. So my dad actually earned this nickname Rock when he was in high school because he was kind of a wild man and he played football. And during practice one day, uh, he hit somebody or somebody hit him and he was a pretty small guy, but pretty stout. And his helmet broke, it like cracked. And he kept playing you know, with it the whole season. So he got this nickname Rock and uh, it's kind of a badge of honor for my dad. One, one, one day they played a prank on him and they, uh, he had a Volkswagen bug you know, back in those days. And they wrapped it with duct tape to seal the doors around it. And then they wrote with the duct tape rock on the, on the car. That was a famous story of my dad's. This is a cool nickname for a guy, right? This is, you know, a rock is tough, a rock is hard, rocks break things. But Jesus' perspective on this name was totally different than Peter's at this point, right? And this, this indicates that from the very beginning of Christ's interaction with Peter, he knows what he's going to do with Peter. He knows who he is. You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Cephas is Aramaic, means rock. Peter is Greek. It means also rock. And this will come up tomorrow in our second session the second uh, event of significance for our purposes. And this is fulfilled, right? Even eternally. In Ephesians 2.20, it says, you can turn there if you'd like. It says that the church is built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. And then later on, even in Revelation 21.14, It says, in the heavenly city of Jerusalem, there are 12 foundation stones. It says, the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. We'll see tomorrow that Peter is named Rock because he is part of that foundation for the church. Universal, down through the ages. Jesus has this perspective in mind when he names Peter. Jesus then knows what his identity will be long-term. Peter's identity before this was Jewish, faithful, from Galilee, fisherman, right? And that would have done well for the duration of his life. But when Jesus comes uh, into his life, he has a new identity picked out for Peter. He will be the rock, and he will be that for all of eternity, actually. It also speaks to his purpose. We find that when this begins to be fulfilled in Peter's life, it's really in, in, the, in the Gospels, yes, but on full center stage in the book of Acts, as he is empowered by the Holy Spirit, preaches and thousands respond in faith, building that initial Jerusalem church. He is foundational in that sense of his ministry. This name that Jesus gives him for rock also speaks to Peter's growth. In Christ, because 
he doesn't start out this way as a foundational stone for the entire church. Jesus has that in mind. And it also speaks then, of course, to his future. What do we learn about the Lord's work in our lives from this simple statement of Christ? Jesus, our good shepherd, is wise enough and omniscient enough and omnipotent enough to work this same way in each individual believer's life. When he calls you to faith and you are converted, he has the duration of your life in mind, who you will become in him, the purpose that he has for you, how you will contribute to his church. This is one of the most remarkable things, especially if you know that you need grace, right? And know that you need to change. The truth about our sanctification is good news. We don't have to get be who we were. We get to be someone else, someone shaped and molded by Christ. Also, it shows us that he has a greater purpose than we have for ourselves, right? But if Peter were to be asked from the beginning, did you know what Christ had in mind for you, especially here? He'd have no idea. No idea. There's a big difference from being a fisherman to being an apostle. He has a greater purpose than we know of ourselves. Just think of the other examples in Scripture, right? Like Joseph or Moses or David. Third, I think naming Peter here, telling him what his new name is in light of his future establishes some kind of ownership over Peter. And Jesus here in some way is saying, your name is Peter, and all the plans I have in mind for you that go along with that name means that I'm going to do this in your life. I'm going to do it. And he takes that kind of ownership with us as well. Those who he chose, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to do it. And praise God for that, right? Because of some kind of conditional arrangement dependent on me or dependent upon Peter, right? Uh, we'd be in trouble. He takes some ownership for accomplishing this in our lives. It's not just a cool nickname. It represents the plans and the purposes that Christ has for this unique disciple. And he has similar plans and purposes for each disciple as well. And I think seeing, framing it this way, it's important, I think, for each follower of Christ to know that there, there really is no, no way that we can walk in a superficial way with Christ. We can't sort of you know, have one foot in the, 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 the blessings or the things we want from Christ and then have another foot sort of in the world. The Christian life, it just can't work that It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. We need to be all in. Peter's all in. That's what Jesus calls us to. Now, if we turn over to Luke, well, turn back, chronologically forward, but back in your Bibles, to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We see, I think, this first episode in Christ's life where Jesus takes the initiative 
to specifically work in his life. This passage is absolutely, um, the, the whole event is absolutely geared for Peter specifically. And Jesus begins this work to demonstrate who he is to Peter so that Peter will respond as a, as a, as a deeper committed disciple. Look at Luke 5, 1 through 11. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now we're fast forwarding here just to drop you into the context. In John chapter 1, we left off there. And in two, chapters 2 through 4, John focuses on Jesus' Judean ministry. And Peter was there for those things. He started to follow Christ. He stuck with Christ. And that part of the ministry is really defined, I would say, by Jesus' private ministry to individuals. Um, he turns water into wine there, John chapter 2. He participates in, 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 in baptizing people similar to John. He goes down to, to Jerusalem for his per, first Passover where he did miracles. They're not uh, made specific to us, but Peter was there as well. He talks with Nicodemus. He talks with the woman from Samaria. He ministers to the Samaritans. Not very public. But by the time we get to Luke chapter 3 and chapter 4, Jesus has now returned to Galilee and his ministry becomes public. He goes to Nazareth and he preaches in the synagogue and they reject him in his own hometown. And so he makes his way down to Capernaum and in a single day, his ministry absolutely explodes. He goes to the synagogue. He casts out a demon. After synagogue, he goes to lunch at Peter's house, heals his mother-in-law. Word gets out about the, mir the miracles that are happening. People flock to the house. And for the entire day, he heals everybody that comes to him in Capernaum. I just preached on this in our church. And this, this would have revolutionized the town, right? You can imagine something like that happening in your town. And what's on display now is that Jesus' power is indicative of the kingdom of heaven now being at hand. He has authority over demons, right? An effect of the fall and, and the rebellion of angels. He has authority over disease, right? Another effect of the fall. The elements of God's kingdom coming on earth are now on display in this little town in Capernaum. Why? Because the king is... The king is there. So his ministry is, is now public. His popularity is growing. Um, so many that come to him are healed. Demons are being cast out. This is the context where we find ourselves in Luke 5. Notice verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. There's the context. By this time, Jesus already knows who Simon, Peter, is. They had met earlier, obviously, in, from John chapter 1. Um, there is in Matthew and Mark indication that Jesus had already had more interaction with them and had maybe even called them to follow him at that point. But this passage is more specific. It's unique to Luke's gospel. And I want you to notice off the bat how many times Peter is referred to, or Simon is referred to. He got into Simon's boat, verse 3. Verse 4, in the middle, he said to Simon. Verse 5, Simon answered. 
Verse 8, but Simon Peter, when Simon Peter saw that. Then again, verse 10, they were partners with Simon, and Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. Right? So six times, I believe, right? Anybody counting along with me? One, two, three, four, five, six. Simon's name is mentioned. The other disciples are mentioned in passing in association with him. This entire event is geared specifically for Peter. Now, in our, in our series, um, obviously we can't cover everything that Peter experienced in Jesus' ministry. So I chose four, and they're linked. This passage, this first event, is linked with John 21. The two in the middle, Mark 8, 34 to 38, is linked later with Mark 14 and Luke 22. There's two themes if you're taking notes. Here it's the event, the event of the catch. It's linked here, very similar in John 21, and that's on purpose. The other two, Mark 8 with Mark 14, Luke 22, is the word deny. Is the word deny. Right? That sort of structure and pattern, I think, is intentional from the Lord. They're related because the Lord intended them to be related. I think you'll see that as we, as we go on. Here we find right away that this is geared especially for Peter. Verse 3, Jesus makes that clear. It says, He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching people from the boat. So hang on to that, because Jesus takes a boat now and he makes it into a pulpit. Jesus takes what Peter is his, his primary tool for work. He didn't have a good night with it the night before. Jesus takes it and he turns it into a pulpit, and the crowds are listening to what he has to say. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now, even on a very earthly level, we can think about this is a carpenter telling a fisherman after a full night of work what to do. Right? I don't know if any of you are in the trades. I have a plumbing background, somewhat. And I don't often listen to People who aren't plumbers. It's just, just the way it goes. It's just the way it goes. I think when you're, when you're in a specialized trade, <laughs> when you're in a specialized trade, or really any field, right, you kind of learn the ins and outs. You learn from your mistakes. You learn from problems and difficulties. And you kind of know better right, than the customer or people who are not in that same trade. It just comes with the experience and the time. I wonder how this may have affected Peter, especially after a graveyard shift that was totally unsuccessful. Notice in verse 5, we worked hard all night. We worked hard all night. And again, just on an earthly level, I don't know how many people here might work a graveyard shift. If you do and have for years, God bless you. Because I tried my first year, my first year at seminary I was a security guard. It was like uh, Friday to Friday to Monday, uh, from uh, overnight, ten to six or something like that, and then Tuesday, Greek exegesis at seven in the morning. 
So I was pulling C minuses when about two months into my first semester, and it didn't work. I, I couldn't hack it. Peter works all night. He caught nothing. And here's this carpenter, rabbi, telling him what to do. Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon Peter answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. Of course, many of you are familiar with this passage. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so they began to sink. You know, I'm no sort of business expert, but I would think that if you're setting up a fishing business and you've had some experience with it, you would buy nets that were a little bit bigger than your biggest catch would be. Right? That makes sense. You're trying to make money. In your boat, right? You'd make sure it's a little bit bigger than what the greatest catch that you expect from the lake in all your experience and time there, right? This is the most unprecedented, greatest quantity of fish that Peter had ever seen, ever, by far. Now, his response to Jesus is eye-opening. And they came and filled both of the boats, so they began to seek. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. This surprising response. I mean, you think he would, like, praise, praise the Lord, right? This is amazing. He says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He's extremely contrite. Notice his posture. He falls down at Jesus' feet, saying, go away from me. What's the connection here? Why is, why is Peter so contrite over this? I think there's two reasons. The first is, I think when Peter says, verse 5, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. I think we have sort of an opportunity to consider what was Peter's tone in what he said? How did he say that? Was it humble? Master, we worked all hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say, let down those nets. Or was it more like, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. I think it's more that way because Jesus has put out into the deep water and let out your nets for a catch as if, as if now there was fish there or something, right? We, we just scoured this, this lake. I think Peter probably says this with some reluctance, some hesitancy. We're like, okay, you work hard all night and are not successful. You don't feel like working anymore, right? But he does it. What does that say about how he viewed Jesus at that point? It says that he didn't think very highly of him. Or as high as he should of him. Right? If he's thinking on an earthy level, what, what do you really have to teach me about fishing? You're a carpenter, you're a rabbi, you're a good teacher. 
what do you really have to say to me about fishing? Okay, I'll do this if you say. But after this great quantity of fish, completely unthinkable for Peter, I think he realizes what he had just said and how he had spoken to Jesus. And I think he also realizes who he had just spoken to. Someone who could, with the word, do this kind of a thing in Peter's world and context is no longer who he thought he, thought he was, right? I think Peter's eyes are being opened here to start realizing who in fact Jesus is. And Jesus does this on purpose for Peter in his context, in his work, in his life, in a way that really wouldn't communicate as much to you or I. This is a, a specific event for this fisherman. Who is this person that can do this kind of a thing? And what did I just say to him? And how did I just say it? You know, we do that kind of thing in our speech, maybe with our spouse. Sometimes we're very familiar with them. So we know each other's body language and sort of our tone of voice. And if we're like, you know, try, you know, the dishwasher's not working. We'll try pushing this button. I did that already. Okay. I'll try it if you say. Right? That sort of contempt about us. I think Peter spoke to Christ this way. And then saw this quantity of fish enclosed. And I think what it did was exposed his heart and his sinfulness. You think if you spoke that way to your spouse and then Jesus walked into the kitchen. He exposed his heart. And also, verse 9, For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. This is a very uh, kind and, and, and patient encouragement from Christ. In some ways, Peter being exposed to his own sinfulness here is, is minor to what's going to happen in the next two passages. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Jesus says, don't fear. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. What is Jesus trying to teach Peter in this event about discipleship? How is he using this event to help prepare Peter for what he would become as his disciple, as his apostle to the church? Four things. The first, following, following me, Jesus has already called him, follow me. This is the deeper now. This is pressing Peter into deeper discipleship. Following me necessarily involves a transformed life. Peter was out in the boat all night, failed. Jesus is in the boat as a pulpit, success. Peter gets back in the boat, does what Jesus says, success, right? We worked hard all night, nothing. But with Jesus now leading, with Jesus leading him, commanding him, whether it's in catching fish or catching men, if Christ is involved, Peter will succeed. 
His life is going to go from being a hardworking fisherman to being a Christ-dependent disciple and apostle. And it has to be that way. You know, think about it from Peter's perspective. I did all this labor all night. I caught nothing. And Jesus says this one word, and I have the greatest catch of my life. I think Jesus is trying to teach him, you've got to listen to what I have to say. You've got to let me lead. Your life is going to be different now and has to be. We've got to start there. Second, then, is a trusting hope. A trusting hope. In this whole scene, as you distill it down, I think as Peter thought about it and reflected on it and remembered it and even taught it to the early church, you know, which is the basis of why we have this account here in Luke's Gospel, Jesus comes out of this event as the source of Peter's hope. He becomes the center of who Peter should trust in his life. And we all know that when we, when we face life and difficulties, when we make plans, we have aspirations, there's, there's a challenge of whether we're going to trust ourselves and our hard work or our intellect or our experience or whatever it is, or whether we're going to trust in Christ. It has to be for this apostle so central to the future of the church that he knows that he can only trust Christ. Number three, a contrite heart. A contrite heart. If there's anything in this series, I think, that is common to these events, what Jesus intentionally presses into the life of Peter is a contrite heart. He exposes Peter's heart here through these events. And he's going to do that in the next one, and the next one deeply, and then even in the, the, the time of restoration. He wants to produce in Peter a contrite heart, which if you know Peter and the, the overall of his life, it's kind of the opposite in some ways. He wants to produce in Peter deep humility. And then lastly, a full allegiance. A full allegiance. By the time we're done with this scene and this event, Peter has opened eyes to who Christ is more fully. And he also has empty hands. He dropped his nets to follow Christ. When they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. He's not bringing with him uh, parts of his old life, things that he can depend on. But it involves this full allegiance to Christ. It goes along with trusting him, right? It goes along with loving him. It goes along with him being the source of our hope. It's got to be full. We trust him to the full. There's nothing competing for that in our hearts. You know, when we think about these four four events that we're going to land in, again, I think this highlights Jesus' perfect wisdom for Peter and for us. He's going to mold and shape Peter into the apostle that he wants him to be. He's going to mold and shape us into the kind of disciples he wants us to be, distinct from Peter, unique from Peter, according to our spiritual gifts, according to our character, how he's created us, according to how he's uh, redeeming us in that character. For sure, this is an unforgettable event for Peter, especially as a fisherman. And I want you to think this week about what Jesus has done in your life uniquely and distinctly as he began his good work in you. 
I know when I reflect on those things in my own life, it causes me to, 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 to see very clearly God's faithfulness over the duration of time that I've been a believer. And also, if, if today or this weekend you have somewhat become stale or um, sort of on pause in your walk with Christ, I want you to consider at this moment in your life, how does Jesus want to work uniquely and distinctly? A lot of times we, we sort of get stale in our walk with Christ for specific reasons. We're in sort of a cycle or we get hung up on uh, some way that we've been hurt or a loss that we've had or some issue that we haven't resolved well with God and we get stuck. Sometimes we can be stuck for years and even decades. How can we yield ourselves to this work of Christ in our life, knowing that he is wise, that he will work specifically in this way in our sanctification? Where does he want to take us in our future? Because certainly he has plans for that. And are you participating with him as he is leading you as shepherd and Lord? And I think all of those things require us to, to listen, to be humble, and to look to him in prayer, and to listen for him through his word this weekend. All right? All right, tomorrow we'll be in Mark chapter 8. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this unique event that opened Peter's eyes to see more of who you are, and also opened his eyes to see more of his heart. Lord, I pray that as we walk with you in this trail of Peter's life and sanctification and growth, as we jump into these scenes in your perfect plan for him, that you would speak to us and relate these things to our lives as well. Lord, I pray for tomorrow's session that your spirit would be at work to give us tender and open hearts, for self-examination and reflection, and that you would make your word clear to us and how it would apply. Lord, thank you for this great place where we can be together and worship you and look to your word, but also to relax and to have fun and to enjoy your creation with our families. Be with us, Lord, and bless our time. Lord, you are the center of us all. You are the common denominator for us all. And we pray that you would be... uh, Uh, exalted during our time, that we would have hearts of gratitude for you, especially in light of the cross. Thank you for going there on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in each one of us. We pray that you would continue to mold us and shape us in your name. Amen.